I want to welcome you back to week three of our continued study of the biblical affirmation that Jesus is Lord. For the series, we're aiming for crystal clarity that cultivates courageous conviction. Our hope is that even if others fall away, that we will remain rooted in the fact that Jesus is Lord. Last week, Pastor Chuck tackled some very hard scriptures as we looked at the implications of Jesus and his lordship. He warned us that there is danger in hearing but not heeding, that we could no longer claim ignorance or be indecisive any longer, and that though there would be a temptation to autocorrect some of these difficult things about Jesus' lordship, that we would have to resist that temptation and embrace the tension that comes with the subject of Jesus becoming Lord of our life. We must choose to recognize Jesus as Lord. And here's what I took away from last week. If Jesus is my Lord, then he is Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. If Jesus is my Lord, then he is Lord of my everything, or he is Lord of nothing. If he is Lord over my finances and my career path, he's Lord over my marriage and my family. He's Lord over my passions and, uh uh-oh, my sex life. You see, he's Lord over it all, or he's not Lord at all. There's no in-between, brothers and sisters. And hear me. This should not terrify us. This should give us comfort because we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. You see, as we continue to embark on this journey together of Jesus is Lord, I want to encourage you with this idea that Jesus' lordship is bigger than me and you. Jesus' lordship is bigger than me and you. You see, a young boy by the name of Michael would have never dreamed he changed the world when he was a kid. Surely the odds were stacked against him as a black boy born in the old South. You see, it helped that his dad, a preacher, saw him as a gift from God. He also, as a child prodigy, entered college at the tender age of only 15 years old. However, his early success only helped mask the scars of segregation. The first time he felt the sting of the Southern class system was when a white friend invited him home. His playmate's mother chased Michael away while loudly berating her son for bringing home a colored boy. As a teenager, he didn't trust the church. He didn't trust a religion that looked the other way as people practiced bigotry and as a rebellion against the church and his father, who was a preacher. He saw the Bible as a myth, which is shocking because he ended up going to seminary. Now, he admitted the only reason he went to seminary was to promote racial justice and not to preach the gospel. But when redneck sheriffs unleashed their police dogs on him, he said this quote, throw us in jail and we'll still love you. Beat us half 
to death and will still love you. But be assured, we'll wear you down with our capacity to suffer. And just when it seemed that all of his peaceful protests and boycotts were making a difference, the U.S. Attorney General launched an investigation. You see, FBI wiretaps saw that he was somehow, some way connected to communists. And agents also found that he was a serial adulterer. By the 1963, many of his impatient followers were deserting to militant groups with slogans like, burn, baby, burn. And after being arrested and placed in a Birmingham city jail, Michael hit rock bottom. He, in his free time, he reread the Bible he had dismissed as a myth. Studying letters from an imprisoned apostle, he realized his hope wasn't in how much he loved people, but in how much his Lord and Savior loved him. Not only did Michael experience a conversion in Birmingham, so did our nation. While in jail, he famously wrote, you must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. You see, the name that appears on his birth certificate is Michael, but history knows him by the name of Martin, a moniker that his father gave him, a preacher. By the time he was assassinated in 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had unleashed a tidal wave that changed everything as we know it. But in a time of uncertainty, how was he so brave? With the odds stacked against him, where did his hope come from? His hope came from our Lord Jesus Christ. More specifically, it came from Romans 8:28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Notice in this letter, though, that Paul writes. He doesn't say, I know that everything works together. He says, we know everything works together. You see, there's a sense of community here. In this instance, we are not just talking about what one man believes, but what a community of believers have come to realize and believe, that Jesus is Lord and that God works all things together for our good. Listen, he is more than my Lord. He is our Lord, and he is for us. So, I want you to recognize that our Lord binds and weaves us together for our good and his purposes. We are no longer segregated, brothers and sisters, by tax brackets and social classes and ethnicities and races, not even sin. I want to encourage you with this simple but profound truth. Christ Jesus is our Lord. Christ Jesus is our Lord. That's my only purpose here today, to remind you and encourage you that Christ Jesus is our Lord. So if you would, would you turn with me to Romans chapter 8? And as you do that, I'll just say a quick word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, give us eyes to see 
ears to hear, hearts and minds that are open, and faith to believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Romans 8.28, one of the most famous scriptures. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to be like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. Now, Paul starts out with this immensely confident statement, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. You see, this text is so familiar that we don't even quote it. We just say Romans 8.28. Hey, you having a bad day? Remember Romans 8.28. And hear me, that is wonderful news, and that is great advice, but it's not so great as you might think it is. And it's not as clever as you think it is. And I'll show you why by showing you some old, but I hope familiar commercial. Hi, never thought I'd want to do a commercial, but here I am for members only jackets. Why? Because when I put one on, something happens. They feel fantastic. The colors are great and all those different styles, absolutely terrific. They go anywhere, anytime. But it's only authentic if it says members only right here. I really believe in them. So should you. Wow. So I have to admit, the first time that I saw this commercial was this week. But the only thing that I found more fascinating than the jacket was my man's perm. Sadly, some of you guys probably had perms in the 90s. So, um, <laughs> members-only jackets became popular in the 1980s. Members-only racer jackets had narrow shoulders, collar straps, knitted trim, and tons of color. And their slogan on their ad was, when you put it on, something happens. You have to admit, though, when it comes to Romans 8.28, when you put it on, something just happens. Even people who don't believe in Christ get a false sense of security from this verse. Romans 8.28, however, doesn't mean that everything will work out okay. It means rather that everything works out for our ultimate good. It's not our temporal interests that matter here. It's our eternal good and the truth about Romans 8.28 is it's members only. It's for Christians only, those who love God. That is, those who have experienced the love of God and have responded to it. Those who can confidently and unashamedly say, Jesus Christ is our Lord. As a result, Christians shouldn't look at present distresses and reversals of good fortune as ultimately destructive. In some manner, they are preparing us for the future revelation of God's glory 
At that time, we'll see clearly what we've always known for those who love God. All things work together for good. Listen, all things work together for good. All pleasures, all pains, all sufferings, all distresses work together for the good of those who love God. Our Lord makes them work for our benefit. And this should boost our confidence. This should give us great hope that God uses everything in life to prepare us for future glory. And if this is true, if he uses all things to work for our good, then what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? You see, this is more than God being gracious towards us. He's for us in everything he does. Even if we're defeated, evil will not prevail. Even if we're defeated in this moment, even if we're down and out, even if we feel downcasted, evil will not prevail because God is for us. See, three arguments follow Paul's statement. He first says, God will withhold nothing from us. God will withhold absolutely nothing from us. Verse 32. Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Won't he also give us everything else? Once again, we're forced to think logically about this. You see, the fact that God gave his one and only son means that he won't withhold anything good from us. Now, this is a silly example, but I'm going to use it anyways. So imagine you go to a Tesla dealership. And at this Tesla dealership, they have a drawing that you can enter. And you choose to just enter that drawing. And a week later, you get a phone call from that same Tesla dealership that says, hey, you won the drawing. Come down and pick up your new Tesla Model X. So you head down to pick up your Tesla Model X. And they tell you, it's yours. Take it home, tax-free. But they refuse to give you the keys to the car. How ridiculous would that be, right? Like, if the car is yours, then everything that belongs to the car is yours too, correct? So in the same sense, if God would give his one and only begotten son, we can't imagine that he wouldn't give us everything else we need. Even in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 say, May God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. Considering the immensity of God's gift of his son, we can be confident, confident that he will not withhold anything from us. 
And then Paul continues with his second argument. He says, God will allow nothing to condemn us. That's worth shouting over. God will not allow anything to condemn us. Verses 33 say, who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Side note, in verses 31 through 34, the word us is used 10 times. Now, why that's significant, I'm not going to share. You can look at that at your own time, numerical number 10. But what that tells me is that Jesus' lordship is bigger than me and you. It's bigger than me and you. Listen, what Jesus has done for you and I individually is amazing. But what he's done for us collectively, that's remarkable. So let me reread verses 33 and 34. Who dares accuse us? Whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for who? Us. Jesus' lordship is bigger than me and you, my brothers and sisters. You see, if accusations are brought against us, we have nothing to fear. Because the pierced right hand of our intercessor is raised to silence those accusations. Listen, and I need you to get this. If accusations are brought against us, they will have to be brought before the dead and now resurrected body of our Savior, which is the basis for our salvation. So in the words of Matt Damon, how do you like them apples? <laughs> Jesus' lordship is bigger than me and you. It is for us. God will not allow anything to condemn us because Jesus, our Lord, stands at our defense. And finally, Paul ends with his third argument. God will allow nothing to separate us from his love. God will allow nothing to separate us from his love. Verse 35. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours 
through Christ who loved us. You see, when John Chrysostom, an early church father, was brought before the Roman emperor, the emperor threatened him with banishment. And Chrysostom's reply was, Thou canst not banish me, for this world is my father's house. But I will slay thee, said the emperor. Nay, thou canst not, said the noble champion of faith. For my life is hid with Christ in God. I will take away your treasures, nay, but thou canst not, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. But I will drive thee away from man and thou shalt have no friend left, nay, thou canst not. I have a friend in heaven from whom thou canst not separate me. I defy thee, for there is nothing thou canst do to hurt me. And in the same breath and fervor, Paul concludes, I am convinced nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, neither angels nor demons, Neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. my soul I stand with Paul declaring too death will not pull us away from God's love neither will life in its allurements nor cosmic spiritual powers benevolent or malevolent nor anything in time nor power nor the height of heaven or the depth of hell nothing else Disappointment, neurosis, diseases, a broken romance, financial crisis, insanity. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God found in Christ Jesus. Would you stand with me? Communion in hand. As we take communion this morning, I want you to take it in remembrance for what Christ Jesus has done for you. Take the bread. And as you take the bread, I want you to remember that his body was broken so that we could break bread with our heavenly father. And as you take the wine, I want you to remember that his blood was poured out so that our heavenly father's love could be poured out on us. And now, may the God of peace himself 
sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you my brothers and sisters is faithful, who also will do it in Jesus' mighty name. So go in peace and go in the name of our heavenly Father and the name of Jesus Christ.